Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Was the ark important enough to mention in the New Testament? 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me read an indictment against our generation. In three verses. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 5 through 7. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 5, creation. Verse 6, the flood. Verse 7, the final judgment. For this they willingly are ignorant of. They choose to ignore the evidence because the evidence is obvious. There was a creator God that created the heavens and the earth, and there was a worldwide flood that seriously altered the exterior of this earth and its surface. This they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens, were, the heavens and the earth were established by his creative power. He then caused the waters to overflow the earth, and the entire earth perished. And that same earth is now reserved and kept in store by the same word unto a fiery judgment against ungodly men, an indictment of our generation. They are willingly ignorant of these facts. We have more ability to know the evidence than has ever been available. And yet without faith, brethren, if it were not for faith that God's given us, we wouldn't believe it either. So now let's turn to Genesis chapter 6 and look a little bit at the flood and the ark in which Noah and his family were saved. Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to teach you tonight, or preach to you tonight, by way of questions. I'm going to ask a question, and we'll answer it with the Word of God. First of all, and all of you children can understand this, Noah and his family and all the animals were saved in an ark from the flood. But what is an ark? Is it... Hmm. As Brother Bruce was not to call a ship, a boat. Neither should we call an ark a ship or a boat. Because the ark was not a boat, and the ark was not a ship. The ark is a box. The ark was a box. The ark was a chest. An ark is a chest, a box, a coffer, a closed basket, or some similar receptacle. The ark was not a boat or a ship. The ark was a waterproof box that would float very well. It only it was intended to go in one direction, up. It didn't have a bow. It didn't have a stern. It didn't have masts, and it didn't have sails. It didn't have oars, and it didn't have holes for oars. It didn't have a rudder, and it didn't have a helm. It was a box. And they all went inside it, and God closed the door. We read about this in the book of Genesis. Moses' mother put little baby Moses, in an ark. That was a basket or a box that she made for him out of bulrushes that would protect him from the water. It was not a boat. He wasn't steering anything, and he wasn't going anywhere. She didn't want him to go far. We read about the Ark of the Covenant that Israel had. It was a little box. We're given its dimensions. That's an ark. It's a box or a chest. So when you think about Noah, and if you ever see pictures in all the Bi- most of the Bible story books... It's a boat. It looks like it's made to go someplace. It was to go up and save Noah and his family and the animals from the water that covered the earth. What is an ark? It's a box. A watertight, waterproof box that would float and keep all the animals and Noah's family alive. When was it built? We can know precisely when it was built. In the year 1,656 after creation. And all that takes is a little math, looking at Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 7 and verse 6. 
because the flood came in the 600th year of Noah's life, and the genealogy is given in chapter 5, you can know exactly when the flood came. And if you know that date, then you know that it was 2,390 B.C. when the flood came. We can know that exactly. When was it built? In the year 1,656 after creation. Cain got things started off well for the sinful human race by killing his brother. I speak as a fool when I say he got it started off well. And for 1,656 years, men sinned, and the earth became increasingly wicked, and then God brought the flood. How long did it take? We don't know. We, can, we know from the Bible, look at Genesis chapter 6, the last part of verse 3. Yet his days shall be 120 years. When God first announced that he was going to judge the world with a flood, he gave a 120-year probationary period, a period of warning, before the flood came. We don't know when Noah and his sons picked up the first saw and made the first plank and started to build the ark. All the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that it was while the long-suffering of God waited. The long-suffering of God waited. This 120 years does not describe how long men were supposed to live. Some people look at the words, yet his days shall be in 120 years, as if God was reducing the average life expectancy from the 900 that Adam through Methuselah lived to be 120. This was a period of, of probation before the flood actually came. Where was it built? We don't know that either. We can speculate that it was built in what we call Mesopotamia because that's where the Garden of Eden was. How do we know that's where the Garden of Eden was? Because the description in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is good enough for us to narrow it down to that part of the world. I just want to point out to you that if it was built in Mesopotamia, it was built at sea level. And when it came to rest, it was three miles above sea level. It went in the right direction, didn't it? It went up. How big was the ark? How big was it? We're in Genesis chapter 6. We want to read verses 15 and 16. And this is, this is God's direction. These are God's directions to Noah on building the ark. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A cubit is a foot and a half long. It's the distance from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. If you take your fa- not not the only children, but when you go home, if you'll take your father's arm and measure from the tip of his elbow, the, not the tailor's, I'll keep working on this, it's the average dimension of a man's arm from his elbow to his fingertip, which, was, which is a way of measuring. And it's about 18 inches on the average man. So that's what a cubit is. So when we read that this box was 300 cubits long, it was 450 feet long. When we read in this verse that it was 50 cubits in breadth, that means its width, it was 75 feet wide. So it had a ratio of 6 to 1 for its width to length. And its height, was, we're told, is 30 cubits or 45 feet for a ratio of 1 to 10. And you take those dimensions, those ratios, build yourself a watertight compartment and put it on water, see if it flips over. It looks like a shoebox. It's wider than it is tall, and it's long. This has been done so many times by skeptics that wanted to prove this thing wouldn't float or wouldn't work, and it works. These are God's dimensions. Go, go look at the ratio of a ship today and see how close that we had it in 1,656 years after creation and 2,390 years before Christ. Those ratios of height to width and height to and length, length to width and length to height. How big was it? Well, it had three floors. Let's go ahead and read verse 16. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. The ark had a covering over the top because we're going to read in a couple chapters that that covering was taken off before, well before Noah and his family got off the ark. 
but it, was, it wasn't very high. It may have only had a one-cubit pitch from center to eaves over that boat, over that box. Box, ark. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Now let's just think about one story on the ark. If it's 450 feet long and 75 feet wide, we have an area of 33,750 square feet. Now that's 15 of these rooms on one level of the ark. Now this room could hold a lot of bugs. You know, people want to wonder if all the animals and the bugs and the reptiles and the birds could fit in the ark. They could all fit in the ark and it's been proved before on one floor. Because the other two floors were for food. They were in there for a year. They'd fit on one. Do you know how many bugs you could get in this room? Especially if God brought the bugs. I know you wish that Noah had left them. But God has a purpose for bugs, and he brought all the creeping things onto that ark. And they would fit in a room like this. I have read, in studying for this sermon, you have to go read men who are skeptics. They don't want to believe the ark was built like that. It looked like that. There was no such thing as gopher wood. All the animals wouldn't fit in it. And they don't believe anything. We believe everything. We believe everything because we haven't heard a better way to live. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth and He gave us His Bible. And this Bible is true and so we believe every word in it. If they can't find gopher wood, that's because they don't know much about trees. And I'll bet Solomon could have told them a lot about the gopher wood tree. That's their fault. We believe the Bible. How big was it? Fifteen of these rooms, and this is a big room. You could get a lot of animals in this room if they're docile with water cascading around them or if the Lord was to give them a a gentle, docile spirit for a while. You could fit a lot of animals in a room like this. I want to remind you that the way we raise animals today, the ones that you eat from the grocery store, the ones that your parents bring home, It doesn't take any room to keep those animals. Those little chickens, they aren't given any room to flap their wings or to run around because that burns up too many calories of the food they're eating. They put them in little tiny boxes where they can't move and they eat and they grow up big and they slaughter them and we eat them. Do you know how much room a chicken box takes? It doesn't take much room at all. You don't have to give it a thousand square feet to run around picking its seeds. You put it in a little tiny box and feed it, and it grows up just like other chickens. Pigs today are raised in a box in which they cannot roll over on their side. They cannot move. They're raised raised in North Carolina. Eric and I have had many entertaining mornings listening to the men deliver the sides of pork to that restaurant and tell us about the huge pig farms in North Carolina. You don't have to give a pig much space. It'll keep right on eating anyway. But men have taken all the animals that are known in the world by reducing them to the species that are necessary to give us the mix that we have today and given them room to move when there's room on one floor. Now listen, if you, if you were God, you're not, so I don't even want to say that. If you were Noah, would you want a full-grown elephant or would you want a small elephant? Listen, why do you have to have the world's biggest elephant? You don't have to look in your encyclopedia and look for some elephant that was 15 feet high at the shoulder and think that's the elephant that God brought onto the ark. Why didn't he bring a little elephant, a little boy elephant, and a little girl elephant? When they got off, they became a big boy elephant and a big girl elephant, and then there were lots of little elephants. Amen. There's lots of ways that it all fits on. And do you know why I'm saying that? If God said all the animals went in the ark, do you know what I believe? All the animals went in the ark. Amen. If you believe in dinosaurs, then there was room on the ark for dinosaurs. Why would they bring the biggest one full grown? The better question is, how many rabbits left the ark? But God's able to take care of that also. I believe that God managed everything on that ark. And all the animals were in there and they all came off. And we still have what God created in the beginning with the names that Adam gave them. Amen. I believe it. I'm simple. I want all of you to be simple, and we believe the Bible. Amen. How big was it? Well, it had 101,250 square feet. It had 1,518,000 cubic feet. That's a big box. 
That's a big box. It holds lots of hay for those animals. You say, well, weren't the weren't some animals eating other animals during that one year that they were in that ark? What were animals eating before the flood? Do, you have, do we have any evidence in the Bible? Amen. Is it in Genesis chapter one? Genesis chapter one, God saw every Genesis chapter one, verse thirty, it says, To every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. They took food for the animals, and man was also a vegetarian before the flood. So they had all this food on two floors and all the animals on one floor. They had all the animals on three floors running wild around the stacks of food. We don't know. There were lots of rooms in the ark also. It tells us that in verse 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. That is, they put a pitch, a resin material over the wood so that the water couldn't get through it. That was on the outside, so the water couldn't get to the wood. They put it on the inside in case the water did get to the wood. It wasn't coming in. It was watertight box. And God told him how to make it, and he made it. And he and his family survived because they believed the word of God, and he did exactly as God said. Amen. And one of the things I want to bring to bear tonight when I finish this is for all the men in this church and for all the boys in this church especially, and then for the women and for the girls, but mainly for the men and the boys... Do you want to be like Noah? Amen. Then whatever God said, we do it. Amen. No one else did it. Noah did it by himself. Noah believed God, and he did exactly as God said, with the whole world thinking he was a nut. And we don't even know that his family believed. The evidence is that his family did not believe, and he did it anyway, and he took them with him and saved his family by his faith. I'll show you that when we come to it. The ark was huge, and it was big enough. What did it look like? It looked like a shoebox, and it did have a window. You would need a little ventilation in such a boat with all those animals, and you would need a place to get rid of some things also. There was a window, and God said that it had a window, and it had a covering above it, and it had a door, and it had three stories and many rooms in it. What was it made of? It was made of gopher wood. Because they can't find gopher wood, I don't worry about it. When I look up gopher wood in my Oxford English Dictionary, which I trust more than any Bible dictionary, I have proved it so many times, these men that write Bible dictionaries are usually Bible disbelievers. But if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, where men are simply looking for the, the origin of a word in English, it says it's, a, it's just simply pine family of trees, generally meaning the cypress. And that would make beautiful sense, wouldn't it? Amen. That's pagans that wrote the Oxford English Dictionary, but they're more believing when it comes to the word gopher wood than Bible dictionary authors. How did Noah know that the ark was safe? Because God told him to build it, so he trusted God. Now, we're not used to looking at square boats, are we? But this was a box. It was an ark. And it was going to do all that Noah needed to have it do, and that was to protect him from the water. Now, how many animals were brought? If God was going to drown everything that was on the earth, we, God wanted to save the animals that he had created. And so how many were brought? Two of every kind. Two of the unclean animals were brought, and 14 of the clean animals. Let's go to chapter 7 and look at it. Genesis chapter 7, verse 2. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens. Sevens, plural. Do we believe every letter in the Word of God? Every letter. So when it says sevens, does that mean there were seven of the clean animals? Or that there were fourteen? Fourteen. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female. Now you can't take seven, the male by his female, because you end up with a leftover. There's fourteen. And of beasts that are not clean by two. Notice that it doesn't say twos. Do you notice that? It says two singular, which means there was one pair, male and female. But when it says seven, it says sevens, because there were seven pair. 14 in total, uh, the male and his female, of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. 
So, two of the unclean and 14 of the clean were brought onto the ark. Absolutely, there isn't a doubt about what I just showed you. And it's trusting every word and every letter. Remember, is there a difference between seed and seeds? Do you notice the difference between sevens, plural, and two, singular, even though both are plural numbers? Okay. That's the word of God. There were 14. Now, why did they bring so many clean animals? Two reasons. After they got off the ark, there wasn't a whole lot planted. And when they got off the ark, Noah was going to offer some sacrifices, and he needed some clean animals. And you're going to read that he took of all those clean animals and began offering sacrifices. If you were on the ark for a year and got off, and it was pretty quiet when you got off, would you want to offer some sacrifices? I hope that you would. And then they began eating those clean animals. Two reasons. They began eating those clean animals as soon as they got off the ark. Man became not only a vegetarian, but he began eating meat. And so it was for man's use, and it was for the praise of God in sacrifice. We don't read about a hunter until we come to Nimrod. No hunter. Till the Tower of Babel, after the flood. We weren't, we weren't, doing, we weren't eating meat before the flood. That's just based on the Bible evidence, the fact that God commanded it in Genesis chapter 1. He had given seeds and fruit for men to eat. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, you can read about it. And it was afterwards that he said, let's go look. Genesis chapter 8. I want you to see the change that took place about what man ate after the flood. Genesis chapter 8 and verse... It's chapter 9. I wanted to show you in chapter 8 and verse 20, it says where those clean beasts were going. Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That's 8.20. But then we come down to chapter 9 and verse 3. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. Genesis chapter 1 was the green herb. Now he's given them meat just like the green herb. Verse 4, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. He didn't want them eating meat still with the blood in it. Could they all fit in the ark? Yes, they could all fit in the ark. All the animals, reptiles, insects, and birds could fit on one floor with the other two floors used for storing the food. How did God, how did Noah get all the animals together? Did he go on an expedition? And, and put little homing devices on their ears so that he could track them by radio. How did he bring all those animals? God brought the animals. Look at Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 at verse 19. This time, the zoo came to Noah and his family. Noah and his family didn't go to the zoo. The zoo came to them. And the zoo came to them two by two, the male with his female. Some of those pictures you've seen that might have looked a little ridiculous with them all lined up crossing the street, animal crossing, pretty close. God lined them up. Watch this. Verse 19, And of every living thing, of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. Of fowls after their kind and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. They're going to come to Noah. This is going to be more than instinct. This is going to be a divine miracle. They are going to come to Noah to be kept alive. God is going to put... Listen, if he can make Balaam's ass preach to Balaam, he can bring... These animals, a male and a female, believing that there's something coming that they ought to avoid so that they ought to line up before Noah so that he can make sure he's got them all in the ark. And so they lined up and they came. I love that last part of verse 20. That the Lord, our Lord God is able to move animals. Two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. What did Noah's family and all the animals eat? Verse 21, right where we're reading. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. And while I'm there, look at that last verse of that chapter 6. Thus did Noah. According to all that God commanded him, so did he. Every father in here, 
Is that your spirit? Is that your commitment? Is that the kind of man you're going to be? Whatever God commands, thus did you, and so will you. Whatever God says to do, are we going to do it and be like Noah? You can save your family from God's judgment by being a righteous father. How bad was the flood? Was it just a little water, a lot of water, or a whole lot of water? It was a whole lot of water and more than that, my father says. How bad was the flood? Genesis chapter 7, verse 19. And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth. And all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. Do we believe those two verses? Under the whole heaven, we do not believe in a regional flood. We don't believe that it was a flood that stood water up high enough to cover mountains in only one small part of the earth, but that water didn't want to run anywhere else. We believe that all the mountains under the whole heaven were covered because the Bible says it. If we're simple, we will take the accusation. We want to be simple enough. If God said it, we believe it, and that settles it. Every mountain. How high is Mount Everest? 29,028 feet. 15 cubits above the tip of Everest. If Everest looked like it did then as it does today, there was some pretty serious movement of the Earth's surface with all that water. But let's say that it was there. That's 30,000 feet because we're 22 and a half feet above the highest peak. That's what it says, and I believe it. Verse 20, 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. We're 22 and a half feet over Everest. That's 30,000 feet. That's six miles. The deepest part of the Pacific Ocean is six to seven miles deep. It's called the Mariana Trench, and that much water was covering the whole earth. And that's what we believe on the Bible record. Mount Ararat, you can look it up on a globe at home. Your little globes at home will have Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey. It's 16,000 feet high. That's over three miles high. Do you know what the tip of it looked like at the worst part of the flood? It was two and a half miles underwater. That is a lot of water. Now, where did God bring that much water? Where did he get that much water? Let's look in our Bibles at chapter 7 and verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. Three things. God sent some rain for forty days and forty nights. He opened the windows of heaven, and he broke up the fountains of the great deep. We don't know what those fountains are in the ocean, but he opened them up and sent out water out of those oceans that came from the oceans like a fountain to flood the land. Now, there have been places that have seen tidal waves, and tidal waves can be horrendous. But the oceans supplied water. The rain came for 40 days and 40 nights, and something called the windows of heaven were opened. I want to take you back to chapter 1 of Genesis and remind you of something that the Bible tells us Little, but it does tell us about some water that was above the heaven or above the sky. Genesis chapter 1, verse 6. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. That's the first heaven. That's the sky that we have that birds fly in and planes fly in. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called his seas. And God saw that it was good. Now we've got water on the earth that he's put in one in, in places called seas, and the dry land has appeared and he calls it earth. But then there's sky, and above that sky is water. Now when God opened the and there there is a theory. We cannot the Bible doesn't tell us any more than that's what I just gave you. 
But we believe that there was water around the whole earth. And because of that water around the whole earth, the whole earth was tropical in nature. It was like the Garden of Eden. But when God opened the windows of heaven, He collapsed that canopy of water, and that water came crashing to earth, which gave us that six miles of water on the earth. And since that time, there have been poles with ice caps in a very different world. And there's a lot of evidence for this fact. And we base it not on scientific evidence first, but second. Because first we go to Genesis chapter 1 and see the division of waters. From water below the heaven and water above the heaven. There was no rainbow before Noah's ark. Before Noah got off the ark. Because there was no refraction of light through, through rain as we presently know it. Because there was a canopy of water dispensing all of sunlight around the whole globe so that the whole thing was tropical. They have found mastodons in the ice in northern Siberia that when they open them up, they find tropical vegetation in their bellies still intact, frozen in place from after the flood because they were washed there. The, whole, the earth was tropical. That's what we believe based on the fact that there was water around the earth from Genesis 1. We are not told very much. Fountains of the deep, what are they? They supplied water. The windows of heaven were open. It supplied water. And it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But to get 30,000 feet of water in 40 days, that's 750 feet of water a day. Did you know that the weatherman gets real excited when we get one inch an hour? Do you know what 750 in a day looks like? You don't build boats to escape. And you don't climb trees. Because the average tree in your yard is 40 feet high. 750 feet of water a day does a lot of damage. Where did the water come from? God told us three sources. What drowned in the flood? Everything drowned in the flood. Look at 617. 617. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. That's what God said, Genesis 6, 17. Let's also look at 7, chapter 7 and verse 21. Here's what actually happened. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beast and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed, which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven. And they were destroyed from the earth, and Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. Everything that has breath drowned in the flood. Everything except what was in the ark. Did children drown in the flood? Amen. Did ponies Drowned in the flood. Amen. Did kittens drown in the flood? Amen. Did grandparents drown in the flood? Amen. Did baby birds drown in the flood? Did mothers drown in the flood? Did turtles drown in the flood? Except sea turtles. Yes, they did. And do you know what we should learn from all that? God is holy and God hates sin. And when men sin, the holy God judges them. We can never, ever fully grasp the holiness of God and how much he hates sin. One of the examples that he gives us in his Bible to try to teach us is for you to think about the flood. They are willingly ignorant of the flood and the terribleness that God revealed in that flood. You think of the tenderest animal or the tenderest human relationship you had, there was no regard for it when the waters of the flood came. I will not speak any further tonight about this at this moment, but I have preached on it before in a sermon called The Terribleness of God. You just think and meditate upon water coming into a house rapidly and suffocating all the inhabitants of that house. There was no mercy because the earth had sinned against a holy God. This is the God we worship, and we do not consider him a horrible, cruel being. We consider him a just and holy being who punished sin, and he did it perfectly. But he's also saved us. He's glorious in his grace and his mercy and his love. Where did the ark finally stop? Where did it come to rest? 
It didn't have a compass. It wasn't going in any particular direction. It was just floating on the waters. It tells us in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 4 that the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. 150 days it's been floating. Five months of 30 days. And it comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Ararat is spoken of in the Bible. It's the eastern section of what we now call Turkey. And there is a particular mountain peak called Mount Ararat. We're not told that it landed particularly on that mountaintop, but it landed in the mountains of Ararat. Mount Ararat itself is 16,942 feet tall, high. I like to believe, because of the location of the Garden of Eden, that it was built somewhere around Mesopotamia, and that ark floated up several miles. And it came down in that 150 days as the Lord began to make the waters go away. Where did the waters go? Where do you, get, where do you put all that water? Do you know how much water that was? Where did it go? Let's look at chapter 8 and verse 1. God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. That means they were reduced. They diminished. They were decreased. God made a wind to pass over. Now, if God can send water like that, if God can breathe a breath of wind and cause the Red Sea to pile up on both sides so that the children of Israel could march through on dry land, I believe that God could send a wind that could evaporate water like you have never studied evaporation. Amen. Because God sent a wind. Now, what else did He do? Verse 2, The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. The last thing he'd need right now is a good rainstorm. So the rain was restrained for a while, the fountains were stopped up, the windows were closed up, and God sent a wind. By those four things, the water began to go down. And it took 150 days, the 40 days, this was going full bore until there was, it was over the highest mountain. And then God stopped it. And then he began to reverse it. But it took 150 days before it came to rest in the mountains. And look, if we keep reading, it says in verse 5, And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountain seen. After two and a half more months, they were finally able to see some mountain peaks. We're talking about a lot of water, but it's going down. Where is the ark today? We can't prove that either. There's a lot of speculation that it's frozen in ice at 14,000 feet on a mountainside in Ararat. We can't prove it. There's a lot. There are men who claim to have taken photos of it from an airplane. There's other men that claim that entire story was a hoax. We don't know. We know where it landed, and God left it there. You know, the Catholic Church claims to have many sections of it, but we don't believe those rumors about all their relics we don't need to know where it was and this is real this is true faith i'm as curious as anyone in this room to go on an expedition to find the ark and take a tour through it there's no one in here that would have more of a desire than me to want to go see that and see the rooms and to take and to look at all three stories of the ark that noah built for his family and all the animals but we don't need to see it because God said it, I believe it, and I don't need any more evidence. I don't need evidence for creation to believe the Bible record that in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and I want you to be that way because that's true faith. Faith rests on God's Word. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Amen. We don't need to have things confirmed because God has said it, and we trust Him. What is a rainbow? What is a rainbow? It's God's bow that He puts in the clouds when it rains and the sun shines. Have all you children been taught by your parents that when the sun is shining and it's just been raining, that you ought to run outside and look around in all directions to see if you can find a rainbow? I think all Christians should do that. All Christian children should go out looking for rainbows after rainstorms because it's a bow put in the clouds by God and there were not any in this world for 1,657 years. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. God here is speaking to Noah, 
And God said, I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token, this is the proof of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. That bow is God's promise that He will never again drown the earth with a flood of water. When you see a rainbow, it's beautiful. And we look at those colors, and, we, and, a, and a, when it's a strong rainbow, I mean the, the, the rainbow that's got its own reflection, and it's beautiful, and the colors are very delineated and are very bright and solid. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, that bow that God has put in the clouds. It was not there for 1,657 years. But it's been there ever since for perpetual generations. It is a promise of God to us. And God says when He puts that bow there, what is He doing when you see it? He's looking at it. Because He says, I will look upon it. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 16. The bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it. When you are outside on your back porch or out in the street looking around and you find that bow and you're shouting to your children... There's a God in heaven that's looking at it also, and our children ought to be taught that. Because the Bible says it. He's looking at that and remembering that He's made a commitment and a promise and a covenant and an oath that He will never destroy the earth again with a flood of water. And so while we're looking at it, He's looking at it, and we can bless God. And yes, I believe it. I'm just that simple in my faith about God and His rainbow and the flood. Love that rainbow. I love the rainbows. Have you all seen a rainbow? All of you children that are in this assembly? I hope that your father and mother gets you out there to see some rainbows. And remember, God put that bow in the clouds. Adam never saw a rainbow. Abel never saw a rainbow. Enoch walked with God, but he never saw a rainbow. But you've seen a rainbow. And that's God's bow to you, a promise that he's never going to destroy the earth again with water. Why did God send the flood? Now we've got to go to some questions that are a little more serious than the dimensions of the ark. Why did God send the flood? Look back at chapter 6. Verse 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God looked down, and he saw that everyone was only thinking about doing bad things. All they could think about was doing wrong. They were wicked, and the earth was filled with that wickedness, and that wickedness was very great, and the imagination of his thoughts were evil. All the music was evil. All the books were evil. All the magazines were evil. Television programming had got evil. Everything was evil in the earth, and God saw it. The wickedness was very great. Verse 11, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. No one took care of anyone else. No one loved each other. They killed each other. And there was violence. Children didn't obey their parents. Husbands didn't love their wives. Wives didn't love their husbands. There was violence in the earth. Cities fought against cities and nations against nations. They always wanted to fight and have wars. And God saw that violence was in the earth. Sometimes war is justified. And when war is justified to defend a nation, we fight and we fight to the last man. The Bible teaches that also. But the Bible God made things a certain way. He made a man and he made a woman and he expected a man and a woman to love each other and to stay together for the rest of their lives. So there were too many divorces. They had corrupted marriage. And then, instead of a man marrying a woman, a man married a man and corrupted God's way upon the earth. And then, when a woman became pregnant, instead of being excited that she was going to have a baby, she went and aborted that baby. 
And there was violence in the earth, and they corrupted God's way upon the earth. If you think that their wickedness was any different before the flood than ours today, where do you think that? There's nothing new under the sun. Man's heart's been the same from the very beginning. He's a liar and a murderer. And they've corrupted everything that God made. But I want to add one more thing. And it's the capstone as to why God sent the flood. He sent the flood because of carnal Christianity. And what is carnal Christianity? When the sons of God are compromising their personal lives and marrying women of the world. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be in 120 years. God sent the flood from Genesis 6, 1 and 2 from carnal Christianity, from the sons of God that were not serious enough about their religion and worshiping God, that they were marrying beautiful women of the world who did not fear God. And so God sent his flood. That's why the flood came. We live in the perilous times of the last days. If you go read the first few verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3, the earth's going to be filled with violence. There's going to be covenant breakers, unholy, without natural affection, disobedient to parents, and on and on it goes. And then it says, they'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny the power thereof. And they'll be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That is why God sent the flood. And brethren, we are in the last days, and we're in the perilous times of the last days, and there is a judgment coming, and I am warning you like Noah warned his generation, except it's fire this time. And that's the verse we started with, Second Peter 3, 5. Verse 5 talks about creation, verse 6, the flood, and verse 7, a judgment of fire that is coming. And I'm not just trying to scare you, I'm trying to scare you to live a holy life. And to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Apostle Paul would say, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Amen. And I want to persuade you that there is a judgment coming, and you can be like Noah if you want to be faithful in your generation. We live in a generation where men are no longer faithful. They don't care what God said in the Bible. They want to do it their way. They don't care about marriage. They don't care about babies. They don't care about love. They don't care about children. They don't care about obeying your boss on the job. They don't care about obeying teachers in class. They don't care about keeping God's commandments. We live in a very dangerous time. Why was Noah saved? Why was Noah saved? Because I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And there is no other reason. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That was why Noah was saved, because God chose to have mercy on him. But how was he saved? What are the actual words of the Word of God that we should never forget? Chapter 6 and verse 8. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Those are wonderful words. Do you know why you're sitting here tonight? But you found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Every single one of you. Why in the world are you sitting here? Why am I here tonight? Do you want to know where I was when I was 17 in my mindset at 17? Why am I here tonight? Because I found grace in the eyes of the Lord and I wasn't even looking for it. When it says found it, it doesn't mean that Noah was looking for it. It means that God gave it to him. And you are here tonight because of that. If you have any interest in the Lord God your Creator, and any love towards your Savior, it is by the grace of God and grace of God only. And you should be most thankful for that. And you should not let that grace of God be bestowed upon you in vain, but you should grow in grace and use it to be faithful in your generation. Be more faithful than your pastor. Be more faithful than any man in here. Be the head of your home and save your home by being a faithful father. And you young boys... Grow up to be faithful men that will do whatever God says, even if the whole world thinks you're nuts. How many other people lined up to get on the ark? Did Noah preach? Yes, he did. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that he was a preacher of righteousness, and no one came to get on that ark. 
They all thought he was a nut. Building a box that big in your backyard, what would your neighbors think? Oh, brethren, I love to think about their thoughts, though, with the first drop. But those drops didn't last for very long because pretty soon the water was flowing like they'd never seen it or imagined it. Tim Weir just recently got back from a trip to Paris with his wife, Elaine. He was in the Louvre, the greatest art museum in the world. He came around a corner, and there was a painting there 20 feet wide and 12 feet high of a man at the very top of a mountain peak where a, a little scrubby tree is growing out of the rock, and his left hand is on that tree holding on for dear life. His wife is hanging by his hand with a baby on her back, clutching her back, and she's holding a baby in her other arm. And on the man's back is his old ancient father, a, a, a you know, a small old man clutched on his back, holding a little bag of money. His hand is holding that tree, and he's holding this woman, his wife, that's just about to slip out of his grasp, and they're looking at each other with horror in their eyes because she's slipping out of his grasp because he cannot hold on. Tim said he walked around the cor in the corner of the Louvre with all these pagan paintings, and there's this 20-foot-wide, 12-feet-high color picture, far larger than life-size, that just leaped off the wall at him. It's called the deluge, because that's exactly what it was, a deluge of water. And there was a picture that someone at some time wanted to represent what happened in the Bible. Brother Tim, knowing that I love the flood, bought a postcard of it, went to a print shop in Paris, said, blow this up as many times as you can. So they blew it up about this big. He folded it all up and mailed it to me. He said, now, imagine it 20 feet by 12 in color in the middle of the Louvre. That was the second package I got. The first one just said, knock, knock, knock. He remembered the sermons, the terribleness of God. For those of you that don't know what that just meant, you should ask after the service. Is there any other reason that Noah was saved? Chapter 7 and verse 1. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. He was a faithful man. If you come back to chapter 6 and verse 9, here's what it says about him. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. I'm not preaching on the ark to tell you about its dimensions. That's in the Bible, so I'll preach it. I want to preach on the ark for all the men in this congregation to want to be just and righteous in your generation and to teach your sons to be the same. You know that Noah is in Hebrews chapter 11? The verse you memorized is verse 6. Noah's the next verse. Verse 7, by faith Noah when he was told to go and build that ark, went and built that ark to the saving of his house. I want you to turn your Bibles to Ezekiel. I want to show you something about Noah. Ezekiel chapter 14. Why was Noah's family saved? God had mercy on Noah's family because of Noah. And here's how we prove this. There are five men... Three of them are mentioned here. The other two are mentioned in Jeremiah 15. In Jeremiah 15, verse 1, the other two are Samuel and Moses. Samuel, Moses, and these three, Noah, Daniel, and Job. These five men are known in the Bible as intercessors. They are men that were able to pray, and God would honor their prayers and their righteousness and their faithfulness and save families, cities, or nations. How many times did God say, Moses, step back and let me annihilate this nation and I'll start over with you? And he would fall on his face before the Lord and beg for mercy and God would save the whole nation because of Moses. They were all cursing Moses and God for bringing them out into the wilderness. They wanted to go back to Egypt. But one man's faithfulness, God would save the nation. And that's true of all five of those. Samuel did it. Moses did it. Job did it. Job did it. Yes, Job did it for his sons. Remember, after every birthday that they would have, Job would offer sacrifices for those sons in case they might have cursed God in their heart during the levity of a party. And at the end of the book, what did the three men have to do? 
go to Job and have him pray for them, that God would forgive them. Do you, do you see the point? These are intercessors. Now, the reason these men are, are mentioned in Jeremiah 15 and Ezekiel is because God is so angry with Israel, he said, even if all five men showed up and began praying, it's not going to be enough for this nation. I'm going to destroy it. Babylon is going to come and level this place. That's verse 14. Those, these, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. The point is, the nation was so bad that even if they were all there, it wouldn't do any good. That's not what we're looking for tonight. What I want you to see tonight is the implication of what we can learn about Noah. These were men that by their righteousness and faithfulness were able to save more than themselves. Noah's family was saved because Noah was a faithful man. We don't even know his wife's name. Let alone her faith, the Bible doesn't say a thing about it. The Bible doesn't say, Noah, you've got a just and faithful wife. Therefore, I want you to build an ark. And the reason I'm saying this is not to belittle women. I want This is the word of God. Noah was an exceptional man, and I want every man in here to be an exceptional man. You can save your family by being faithful and righteous because God looks first at you for your family. And I do not mean save your family to heaven. I mean save your family from God's judgment on this earth. And all you young boys... What do you want to grow up to be like? Those men that drowned in the flood? Or Noah? Noah walked with God. And Noah believed God. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Is the ark a picture of something? Is the ark a picture of something? This earth was covered with torrential water tearing the surface drowning everything that had the breath of life in its nostrils, destroying all flesh and every living thing, and all men died. The water of God's judgment was punishing this earth for its great wickedness. But there was a box floating on the surface of that water, inside in which it was warm, with all the pleasant sounds of a very large farm. And in that box were eight people, and they were saved by God. Those animals went up into that ark, and Noah saw them all into the ark to know that he had them all. And God said, Noah, it's time for your family to go in there. And he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It didn't matter if she wanted to go to the mall that day. He took his wife and his three sons and their three wives into the ark. And when they stepped through that doorway, God shut them in. That is chapter 7 and verse 16. God shut the door of the ark. That box is a picture. That box is a picture of Jesus Christ. Everyone that is going to be saved from the fiery judgment that's to come to burn up this world has to be in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, He has shut the door. No one can get into Him but those that are put in Him. Amen. There is a very specific and a number known before the foundation of the world of all those that God will save from the judgment that is coming. And they were, and they were put in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have learned a verse in recent weeks to tell us how you were put into Jesus Christ. And it was Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, which is what I preached to you this morning. Every bride must stand before her husband at some point and be fully exposed to his view and whether she meets his approval. And I want to tell you something. God made us holy and without blame so that we could stand before Him, exposed to His holy view, and be found in love. Do you like Ephesians 1.4? Amen. Sorry that I missed it this morning. It's in the outline and a lot more just like it. That is grace. He made us beautiful so that the king would greatly desire our beauty. So that we could stand before him in love by making us accepted in the beloved. That's getting back to this morning. So what I want to show you right now is that that box was a picture of Jesus Christ. All that were in were saved. All that were out were lost and under God's judgment. 
the Bible tells us that all spiritual blessings in heavenly places are in Christ Jesus. If you are not in Christ Jesus, you are outside the ark and the waters of the fire of judgment that is coming is going to destroy you. But if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be saved with an everlasting salvation and the fire will never touch you. But not only will you be saved from that fire, you'll be brought into his presence and made his glorious bride and he will love you forever and shower all of his affection and tenderness upon you. Where do we see this picture? 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 says the like figure. Now when it says the like figure, that means we've got two figures. Can we all follow that? The like figure. So verse 21 must have a figure that's like a figure that's just been given. So we have to go back to verse 20. Which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. That's the other figure. The ark that saved eight souls was a figure of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation by Him. If you were in the ark, you were saved. If you were outside of the ark, you were destroyed by God, and all men died that were not in the ark. So is the ark a picture? Yes, it's a picture of being in Christ Jesus. And I want to tell you something, that our Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18 says He has the keys of hell and of death. Our Lord Jesus Christ closed the door of the ark. No one else could get in. No one could get out either. I like that. Our Lord Jesus Christ has the keys of hell and of death. When he opens and delivers you, no man can shut, because he says that two chapters later. And when he shuts, no man can open. You are saved with an everlasting salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come for us and is delivering us from the wrath to come. Wrath is coming. How can we know if we're in Christ Jesus? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. If you live a life by the grace of God, of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, righteousness and truth that is evidence that you are in Christ Jesus and there is no more condemnation for you we learned a verse last week 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure for if ye do these things ye shall never fall if you do the things mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 1 then you can know by the grace of God that you are one of his elect and you are in Christ Jesus and you will never be destroyed Do you want to know how to get the whole thing started? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Because if you can believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that that proves right there that you are the elect of God and that you're in Christ. Because only those in Him would ever believe. So believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And in that great day of fiery judgment, you shall be saved. There's another picture, though. And it's in verse 21. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. There is a picture of salvation in the ark because the eight souls that were in it were saved and those that were outside it were all drowned. There's a picture of salvation in baptism because in baptism we show that our confidence is in the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when someone is baptized, they are laid below the water as as if they were being buried and then they are raised back up again as if they were being resurrected in a picture, a picture of how we're saved from the judgment that's coming by Jesus Christ's burial and resurrection for our sins. Will God destroy the earth again? Yes. Yes. But he won't use water. He'll be using fire. What else does the rainbow signify to us? Look at Isaiah 54 with me. I'm closing, right? I'm closing. Isaiah 54. Does the rainbow show us anything else? Isaiah 54 and verse 9. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. This is God speaking. 
For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah shall no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. Whenever you see that rainbow, I want you to know two things. One, God has sworn never to drown the earth again and destroy all flesh with a flood of water. Two, it's just as sure that there will never be an earth-wide flood of water. It's just as sure that he will never take away his loving kindness from his elect, but that we shall be saved with an everlasting salvation. Amen. We are in the ark, Christ Jesus, and you ought to be most thankful. And we are going to ride out the storm of this universe when the Lord Jesus Christ comes with, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them that know not God. And the devil and his angels will be cast into the lake of fire, and so will all men that are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we are in the ark, Christ Jesus, and we shall be saved with an everlasting salvation. And I ask you men to be righteous in your generation, as Noah was in his, with the righteousness that God has given us through Christ Jesus. Can we at least give him some service of being faithful to his word while we live in this corrupt society that has corrupted the way of God in the earth? May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen.